In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. These words capture our attention and draw us into the preacher's theme. So I want you to open your Bibles with me to our scripture passage from Hebrews chapter 1. And you notice that I introduced the author of Hebrews as the preacher, because Hebrews is not just a written record of theological truths tucked into our Bibles. Hebrews itself, in chapter 13, will be described as a word of exhortation. And that's the way that you would describe a sermon, a homily. Hebrews is a homily. Now, it's written down, and it's part of this letter, so it's appropriate also to call it the epistle to the Hebrews, but that might confuse us because then we think it's supposed to act like one of Paul's epistles or one of the other New Testament epistles, but it's, it's a word of exhortation. It's a sermon meant to be heard. It's not merely a letter. Hebrews is meant to change us when we hear it. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to Christian believers who likely had a background in a Greek-speaking synagogue. They would have been Jewish believers, Jews who heard the message of Christ and put their their trust in Jesus Christ. And yet, based on the way the quotations work in the book, they would have heard the Old Testament much the way you and I hear the Old Testament, through a translation. They weren't reading it in Hebrew, but were likely reading it in the Greek translation. That's where all of the quotations in the book come from. Now, Hebrews doesn't actually name an author. It doesn't tell us who the preacher is. The one thing that most scholars today will tell us with confidence is that it was not Paul. They would say, I'm not sure who it is. Maybe it was Apollos or maybe Barnabas or most likely, another unnamed preacher. Because like all sermons, the preacher's identity is less important than the subject. With Jesus as the subject of the sermon, losing the preacher's name to history is just fine. Hebrews is written to provide encouragement to the church to respond with courage in the midst of suffering. And so you might feel like someone who needs encouragement today. And so listen to the Word of God, the beginning of this sermon. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Let me pray that God would provide us the hope and encouragement that we need through his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of the gospel, for the truth of 
of salvation which is announced to us here in the book of Hebrews. Father, I pray for those that listen here in the sanctuary, those that that join us through the live stream, that your spirit would be active and involved in our lives, that we wouldn't hear this merely as information to, to, to excite us or as details about what was true in some other time or some other place, but that we would hear the message today as your word spoken to us, as a promise of salvation offered right here in the midst of of this gathered community of worship. Lord, for those that don't know Jesus as Savior, give them the faith today to put their trust in him. Lord, for those that feel burdened by the, the sorrows, the tragedies, the sufferings of life, may they find hope and comfort in your word. And for those of us that long to follow you in joy, Father, I pray that you would give us gospel confidence as we read together and reflect on the truth of your goodness. Father, we come today praying in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. It can be frustrating waiting for further instructions. Maybe you've been at a, at a volunteer day, an opportunity, and, and, and you're ready to go, but people are still kind of milling about, and you check your watch, and you think, isn't it, isn't it time for us to get to work? And so well, you go and grab another donut and chit-chat a little more. And, but, but you're waiting for somebody to tell you what needs to happen. Where do you need me to go? What do you want me to do? Or maybe you're in the middle of a work or a school project, but you need feedback from your boss or your instructor before you're allowed to continue. So you're ready. Like, I, I've done everything I can do. What comes next? Now, sometimes the option to wait for a further word of instruction can be a relief. Perhaps in the midst of a rigorous sports practice, you enjoy the few minutes in the shade or on the sidelines while your coaches figure out what drill for you to run next, and you're relieved to have a little bit of a break. But often, waiting creates frustration. You think, I'm ready to go, I just need a further word. Now the people of God, at the beginning of the New Testament, had waited 400 years for God to speak. God had spoken through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but not recently. It's been centuries. None of our grandparents or great-grandparents remember the days of the prophets when he spoke. He'd spoken in the past, but now there was nothing but silence. Until the arrival, the appearance of Jesus. In the past, God spoke, and now God has spoken. And consider first with me the way that God spoke to his people in the past. The, the opening words here are, are a powerful beginning to the sermon of Hebrews, a bold declaration that God has spoken. And think of the ways that God spoke throughout history. In the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, God spoke with them face to face. In calling the patriarchs, we sometimes hear an audible voice in the scriptures that God spoke to Abraham and called him to come follow him. Or think of how God spoke through a dream to Joseph. Or to Moses, God appeared in a burning bush and spoke. Or later, and when the law was given after the rescue of God's people in the Exodus, God spoke face to face again with Moses. 
God spoke to Job in a whirlwind. He spoke to Samuel in the night. He spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. And God spoke to his people repeatedly through his prophets. His spokesmen and women who were there to announce not just what they thought, but the very words of God, thus saith the Lord. And, and consider with me how generous God is to reveal himself. How, how wonderfully comforting these opening words are that in the past God spoke. God hasn't left us on our own to figure out how to do things. God is not silent. And, and that means we are not in a place where we need to figure out how to live life, how to succeed, how to, how to be in right relationship with God. We don't have to figure that out on our own. No philosophical genius is required for this task. Like Descartes trying to claim, I think, therefore I am. As if he could carve out some safe spot of knowledge apart from the true knowledge of God and say, oh, from here I can get myself, from knowledge of myself I can create a philosophical structure where I will gain knowledge of God. No. There's a foolish and dangerous attempt to gain knowledge apart from who God is. We're not expected to attain some sort of level of, of moral purity or religious observance before we're given the key to some secret store of knowledge that God has only for a select few. Now, what the scriptures are announcing to us is that God has spoken to us repeatedly, frequently, again and again, in a variety of ways. God has made himself clear to us. Now, perhaps, as you listen today, you would identify yourself as an atheist or an agnostic. You don't believe in God, or maybe you're just not sure if there's evidence there to prove that God exists. And you might think that, that you're taking a humble approach to say, well, you know, it would be arrogant for me to try and claim that I, I know there is a God. Now, in a, in a universe without a God... That would be a reasonable kind of claim to make. I just can't figure it out. Even a universe in which God is not active or involved to say, you know what, this feels really hard to figure out, so I'm, you know, I'm going to remain agnostic. I'm not going to try to claim some sort of knowledge. Except that that's not the universe that you and I live in. There is no morally neutral position when it comes to knowledge of God because God has spoken he has revealed himself to us, and so to say, well, I'm just not sure, is no longer a humble position. It's saying to the God who speaks, the God who has revealed himself, I don't believe you, and I don't want anything to do with you. See, to, to say, I, I just don't know. I don't know if there's enough evidence. I don't know if there is a God. That's actually to have already made a firm conclusion. And if we lived in an empty universe, then I think it would be fine to admit, I don't know if there is a God. Except that's not the universe you and I live in. We live in a time in which God has spoken. And so we need to listen. And when God speaks, he reveals to us the hope of salvation. He offers to us himself. All right, so we see that in the past, 
God spoke. But when we turn to verse 2, we see, secondly, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. There's a clear contrast being set here at the, at the beginning of Hebrews, which will continue through the rest of Hebrews. God has done something one way, and now when Jesus comes, Jesus is superior. And so it's not that the, the speaking of God in the past was insufficient or that it was untrue. No, God made himself clearly known, but now God has made himself fully known, completely. He's revealed everything you and I need. And this, this theme that Jesus is better, we'll see it again in verse 4, that the name Jesus receives compared to the angels is much superior, is much better than the name that they get. We'll see this theme that Jesus is better repeatedly through the book. He is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the high priests of the Old Testament. Jesus is better than the sacrificial system of the tabernacle. Jesus is superior. Jesus is better will become the theme of our series as we look at this book of Hebrews. Because now we have the direct revelation of God in Jesus. In these last days, in this final period of history in which you and I share with the first century church, the time between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and his return to us, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. And so what do we understand right here at the beginning about who is Jesus? What do we know through this revelation? And so I want to give us seven facts that we learn about Jesus in verses 2 and 3. Now, I know some of you are panicking. Wait, we are this far into the sermon, and we're now discovering it's a seven-point sermon? Th these are really sub-points. We're going to move quickly. And really, for those of you that are playing homiletical bingo in your pews, it's really technically a, an unbalanced two-point sermon following the structure of the passage, then but now. All right? So I'm going to move quickly through these seven things that we, we uncover about Jesus in just verses 2 and 3. First, we'll, and we'll move quickly, we learn that God, having spoken to us by his Son, that the Son is the one, verse 2, whom he appointed heir of all things. Everything belongs to Jesus. The kingdom of God belongs to Jesus. Everything that exists belongs to Jesus. You don't need to check the will and see, well, does this go to Jesus or does this go to someone else? No, if it is it is Jesus's. Everything. He is the heir who, because of his death and resurrection, has now, now reigns as the king, the son who will receive everything. And that's because, secondly, we're told he is the one through whom God made the universe. Now, the, the language there is that, that God made the ages, the, the eons of time. So, so universe is actually a helpful description, but it, but it forces us to think more broadly than we think of just the stuff, the physical matter of the universe. Yes, that belongs to Jesus because he is the heir of all things. The universe is, is his because he made it, but he even created the ages. He created time and space. Everything you and I experience or could possibly experience belongs to Jesus because he made everything. And we've heard this truth through the, the Christmas season. We heard it at the beginning of, of John's gospel. In, in John chapter 1, we read in John 1 verse 3, 
that through Jesus, through the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The Apostle Paul will, will echo this truth in, in Colossians chapter 1. He says in Colossians 1.16, For by Christ all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. Everything belongs to him. He is the heir of everything. And then we learn third in verse 3 that the Son is the radiance of God's glory. He is the shining forth of the power and majesty of who God is. The pure and perfect power of God is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Do you want to know what God's power looks like? Then look to Jesus in the resurrection from the dead. Do you want to know what the compassion and love of God looks like? Then look at the love of Jesus healing the, the sick, raising the dead, and then giving himself on the cross for us. And this is a, a radical claim to make, that the, the glory of God is made visible to us in that guy who lived a few decades ago at the very edge of the Roman Empire. That the glory, the radiance of God has been embodied right here. That the man, Jesus Christ, who lived and died is the eternal Son of God and the supreme revelation of God for us. Because we see fourth here that Jesus, the Son, is the exact representation of God's being. The very essence of who God is has been embodied in Jesus. Everything you would need to know about who God is is fully revealed to us. This means that Jesus is one with God, eternal in glory and perfect in power as the Son of God, and yet distinct as the Son. He is a ministry to us. This is the, the highest Christology that we have in all of the scriptures. The exaltation of who Jesus is, the exact representation of the being of God here for us. And fifth, we learn that, that God is sustaining all things by his powerful word. That through Christ, everything that exists, it was made by Christ, but it continues to exist. It's upheld by the very words of Christ. You and I depend upon God for our every breath, for every instant of our existence is dependent upon the loving and creative involvement of Jesus the Savior in the universe. We exist because he upholds us. He sustains us. The entire universe is held in his hand and spoken by his powerful word. With a word, he spoke the heavens into place, and with the power of his word, he keeps all things in existence. And so there is this, this grammatical shift now as we move to the sixth thing we learn about Jesus. We're not speaking of the way that God the Father was at work through the Son. We're speaking now, now specifically at the end of verse 3 of how Jesus is at work. We read that after he provided purification for our sins. And so that's our sixth thing we learn about Jesus, that he is the one who provides forgiveness to us. 
that he's the one who deals with the problem of sin, our rebellion against God and who he is. That that is, is solved by the ministry of Jesus Christ. The Jesus who radiates the glory of God took on a human body that he might die in the place of sinners. That he could bear the guilt and the judgment that you and I deserve for our sin. He himself provides purification for our sins. And so you see that, that how the word of God in the past was leading us to this point, that, that God giving instructions on how the people should enter the tabernacle or into the temple with sacrifices was preparing us for this moment when the purification of sins is accomplished once for all in the death of Jesus Christ. Now again, what the author of Hebrews is doing here in his sermon introduction is preparing you for the things that, that he'll stretch out to, to reveal to us more fully later in the sermon. Not today's sermon, I mean in the book of Hebrews. In the coming sermon series, we'll see this. That Jesus gave his own life, that he provided purification for sins. The high priest who offers the sacrifice, the lamb of God who was slain for us. And so then the seventh thing we learn about this revelation that we have in Jesus here in verses 2 and 3 is that Jesus then sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now to not use the Lord's name and just say at the Lord's right hand is to, to describe the majesty. That's a kind of Jewish circumlocution to try and walk around avoiding saying God's name for fear that you would accidentally say it in the wrong tone or way. But it's a, a, a common phrase that you would have heard in the synagogues, that Jesus now, having finished his work of providing salvation for his people, sat down. He's not merely in the throne room with God as a spectator, but where is he seated? At the right hand, the position of power, not merely near the throne of God, but on a throne, the Son of God, co-equal with God the Father. The one who provided purification for sins now enthroned as the king in heaven. Because the work of salvation doesn't have, have, Jesus has nothing left to do. He's not like the priests of the Old Testament who have sacrifices to offer again tomorrow. He is done and so he sat down. Now this doesn't mean that, that we're, we're meant to only reflect on the fact that Jesus is, is perpetually sitting. It's a reminder that his work of salvation is done. Because he continues, the scriptures tell us elsewhere, to intercede for us. He continues to actively reign. We've already seen, seen that here, that he upholds and sustains all things by his powerful word. But it's a reminder to us that he has done the work of salvation, and so he now reigns on the throne of God forever. And what, what the sermon introduction is meant to do for us is see that when you encounter Jesus, you're meeting more than a mere man. You meet God when you encounter Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of God's being. You learn everything you need to know about who God is when you encounter Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, it should leave you changed and transformed. Consider the woman of Samaria from John's Gospel. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, Jesus is with his disciples in Samaria. Not a pleasant place to travel through. There is hatred and animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. 
And Jesus is left by his disciples at the well of Samaria at at the middle of the day, a time in which he shouldn't be interrupted by anyone because no one comes to draw water in the middle of the day. Well, except that Jesus is there by appointment, divine appointment, waiting for one woman, a woman who came not with her neighbors early in the day when it was still cool, but comes when the sun is beating down from on high. And Jesus engages with her, a a surprise to her because he shouldn't even be speaking to her. He's a man, she's a woman, he's a Jew, she's a Samaritan. And yet Jesus graciously and, and invites her into, into conversation and relationship. He, he asks for a drink of water. And when she provides physical water, he offers her spiritual water, living water, the hope of eternal life. And their, their conversation becomes a, a, both a theological debate but also a very personal encounter. Because Jesus reveals to her something which he couldn't have otherwise known, that she is a woman who has had five husbands and the man with whom she is now with is not her husband. And perhaps that's the reason for her shame or brokenness that brings her here to the well by herself. But the encounter leaves her changed as she receives the gift of living water from Jesus. She goes back to her community and and listen to the way John describes how radically she's been changed. In John chapter 4, John the apostle writes to us, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now he actually only gave a couple of details about who she is. But she understood that he saw into the depth of her soul. That he fully and completely understood her deepest needs. And unlike those who had treated her with disdain or frustration and and heaped upon her shame in her life, Jesus was the one who dealt with her shame by giving her the gift of eternal life. And so she asks, could this be the Christ? Could this be the promised king come from God for whom I have been waiting? Because to encounter Jesus is to find the fullness of God's love and compassion. To find the the depth of God's power and provision in the person of Jesus. And and, and notice that that in this description of who Jesus is, we have announced to us in, in the language and context of the Old Testament, which would make perfect sense to people who had grown up in the synagogue worship. We have announced to us that Jesus is the final revelation of God. He is the true prophet. That Jesus is the one who provides purification for our sins. He is the true priest. Jesus is the one now enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. He is the true king. He is prophet, priest, and king. Every part of the Old Testament has been pointing us forward. When God spoke in the past, it was so that we would be ready to hear this now. That Jesus is the full and complete revelation of God for us. But notice the emphasis in Hebrews 1 is not put on the title of prophet or the title of priest or the title of even king. Notice the the title that Hebrews 1 highlights. The the name that is given to Jesus. Look at verse 4 with me sort of culminating these seven truths we've learned about Jesus into the name that he has inherited. 
So he became as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. But wait, what name? Now we might, if we go back to some of the parallels of, of the Pauline epistles, take, take the, the, the name from Philippians 2, the great declaration that, that because of the, the exaltation of, of Jesus Christ, he's given the name above every name. He is called the Lord. And that would be true for us to declare that Jesus is the Lord. That, that's a, a common Christian declaration. Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus the one who came to forgive our sins, who is the Christ, the anointed King of God, who is our Lord, who reigns over us. And yet, those are not the titles that Hebrews 1 is describing. That's not the name that we're being pointed to here in Hebrews 1. No, the name here is, is much more intimate. Well, we, we see it in verse 2. God spoke in the past in many ways, but verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's the name given to Jesus. He is the son of God. It's repeated for us in verse 3 that the son is the radiance of God's glory. And so the name that is superior to the name of messenger given to angels, angelic messengers of God, is that he is now the son of God. He has appeared. And of course, it's true that from all eternity, he has been in relationship with God the Father as the Son. But because of his ministry on earth, because he provided for our sins, because he's been raised to the right hand of God the Father, he is the Son of God. And this language of, of intimacy is meaningful for us. That we are meant to be in relationship with God. We can call God our Father. In the prayer that Pastor Mike often forgets, we say, Our Father who art in heaven, because the Son has appeared, because the Son has spoken. And so this title is a much more intimate title, much more relational. He is the Son of God. He is God himself, the Son who gave his life for us. Now, it's often said that if you meet your childhood idol, you'll end up disappointed. Because your memories or your imagination of this person's greatness, well, it can't measure up to when you meet your hero in person. And so you'll just be disappointed. But when you meet Jesus, he exceeds even your wildest ideas of his greatness. The expansive universe. Oh, he made that by the power of his word. And he sustains it all. And it's all his. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the great high priest who provided purification for our sins. He is the king enthroned in heaven. And so when you meet Jesus, you are meant to be changed. Because you now hear the full revelation of who God is and what he has done for you through Jesus. Now you understand the truth of who you are and the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, your Savior. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. Many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us 
by his son. Let me pray. Father, we rejoice in this good news of salvation. That Jesus the Christ, Jesus our King, Jesus our Rescuer, is your Son. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us through the powerful ministry of Jesus our Savior. Through his arrival and appearance here in the flesh, we now understand completely and fully who you are. We understand what Jesus has done for us and the work that you have accomplished on our behalf through his ministry. Lord, I pray for those that that wrestle with the, the truth of these claims, that you would graciously draw the, each who listens to you, that they would understand and confess with joy the greatness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, for those of us that, that feel the, the struggles and trials of life, give us encouragement through your word. Father, we come to give you praise through Jesus, your Son, who is our rescuer. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.